Inside of our remaining time before we uh, close with communion, I just want to wrap up this series that we've been in called Finding My Way. And as you recall, this was kind of our post-Easter series that after we talked about the way of the cross to talk about what's it mean for us to find our way. And that's not just as simple as what decisions do I need to make this week or, you know, how do I figure this thing called life out, but actually what it means to develop or to allow Jesus to continue to develop and rework a framework for living, for decision-making, a template for life, uh, for my life. And so this next slide, we, we talked about from the beginning that, you know, if we base uh, all that we do on the Word of God and then those kind of core theological beliefs of really what are the benchmarks of our faith, kind of between what you believe and what you think about God and how you act is this middle layer, this kind of light blue that talks about Uh, Romans 12 says that there is the renewing of our mind. And I think that that's an ongoing thing that takes place inside of our Christian life, that every decade or every season of life, or as things happen, we are constantly having our life's framework reworked. It doesn't mean that we didn't believe in Jesus, and now we do, or we had it wrong, and now we get it right, but it's more of, given where I am now, in terms of what I know, where I am, the responsibilities I have, the challenges, the things I struggle with, what does it look like for God to rework the patterns, the viewpoints, how I see life, how I adapt to life that's taken place within me. And so where we've broken that down has been really a series of topics, but they're not unrelated topics. They actually go together in thinking about what are the things that constantly come up at every stage of life, at every season of life, when the decade you know, changes over, What are the things I'm chased with? You know, how do I navigate a changing world? How do I continue to make the main thing the main thing and and keep priorities intact? To develop life-giving habits, to learn to trust God in the big and small things, to be faithful and yet contempt, content, not contempt, uh, to be faithful to where God has placed me, but also content with all that I have and with what I, you know, am and, and where God has placed me at the moment. That God would use and redeem our time And last week we talked about this idea of, you know, resilience, of of what it means to to rest in the fact that, you know, God is the one who kind of, you know, leads us into the future and we can work and we can give ourselves to the places and to the people and and, and to the tasks that that he has given us, but also rest in the fact that he is the one that brings it to completion. So today I just kind of want to wrap this up with two uh, P words and to talk to you about uh, really what would just add kind of an eighth bullet point to this list is how we reconcile or think about our prayer and our placement. To have a, and this would be, you know, the tongue twister, to have a proper perspective, and we're not going to say that o- over again, but to have a perspective of prayer and placement. And here's what I mean by prayer and placement. Prayer, in this sense, I use as the summary of your relationship with God, your communication with God, your understanding of what God wants to do inside of your life now, where God is speaking, where God is moving, how God is drawing you closer to himself, all that inside of this aspect of prayer, our connection with God. And then placement is the context of my life, where I am, what's going on around me. And so, as you know, oftentimes the things that we pray about have to do with our placement. And because of this season or circumstances or things that are going on in the world or going on in my life, It affects how I pray. You also know that your prayer life with God makes a difference inside of your placement. You know, for God to give you the strength or to give you the wisdom or help lead you through something. 
The problem is sometimes we don't have the right perspective. We allow our placement to dictate or to dominate our prayer life or to choke out our prayer life. Or even perhaps to misinterpret that somehow if God really loves me, then he would do the things that I say or ask for. Otherwise, where is God in the midst of this? And so sometimes we are caught between our life in Christ and when everything seems to be simple and clear, and then what we end up living out inside of our lives on a day-to-day basis. That there's a connection between the two, but there's also sometimes tension between the two. So I want to talk with you a few minutes about a character inside of the Old Testament, uh, Elijah. Now, Elijah, E-L-I-J-A-H, is different than the prophet Elisha, E-L-I-S-H-A, to Elijah's, pronounced similarly. similarly. But Elijah the first is one of the larger-than-life figures in the Old Testament. He becomes the, the personification of the role of prophet. So much so that Elijah is either mentioned or referred to 30 times in the New Testament. Now that 30 times is only eclipsed by Moses, Abraham, and David. And they're referred to, you know, somewhere between, you know, 50 and and 80, between, between, you know, those three characters. But Elijah is referred to often, which is funny because we don't necessarily know a lot about Elijah. We know a good deal about Moses in that whole journey, you know, from Egypt to the promised land. We know a lot about David and and his, you know, journey from being the the shepherd boy to the king and all the ups and downs in between. We know a good bit about Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons and, you know, that becomes that patriarch, you know, in the line of Isaac and Jacob and so on. But Elijah, we just have a handful of stories and he's almost like that essential eccentric uncle inside of our lives, inside of our faith, where we have a few weird stories about Elijah, but we don't really feel like we know the guy a whole lot. Much of what we know about him, or or probably most of the sermons you've heard about Elijah, take place somewhere between 1 Kings chapter 17 to 1 Kings chapter 19. And so let me just summarize for you before we get to the passage we're going to read. Elijah's ministry happens inside uh, the nation of Israel. You know, at that time there is Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And so the nation of Israel quickly goes downhill in terms of their faith and in terms of their morality. A king comes into power whose name is Ahab. Ahab, it says, reigned for 22 years. And we get two superlatives about Ahab. Scripture tells us there that he did more evil than any of the kings before him. And as if that wasn't enough to get the picture, a sentence or two later it says he aroused the Lord's anger more than any of the kings before him. Ahab was not a great guy. The only thing that makes Ahab a little bit worse is his wife, who we actually, we've memorized her name even more than Ahab. You don't hear too many Ahabs referred to today. But uh, his wife was the daughter of a pagan king of a nearby nation. Her name now becomes synonymous with evil. And so Ahab's wife, you know her name was? Jezebel. And I apologize if anybody here have a relative named Jezebel. We don't name kids Jezebel anymore. If you did, you'd probably, you know, somebody would want to talk to you or some type of hate crime, you know, against this poor child. Because Jezebel becomes almost synonymous with evil. 
If somebody is a Jezebel, that is not a compliment. That means they maybe are, uh, you know, backbiting or they're conniving or they're just evil. Jezebel is not a nice name, and it's because it draws on this particular uh, woman, the wife of Ahab, the wife of of the king, who did more evil than any other kings before him and aroused the Lord's anger than anyone before him, was also married to somebody who now becomes a word that we use in place of someone who is not so nice. And so uh, Elijah steps in and he proclaims that what's going on right now is not right. And he issues a word, you know, from God that there's going to be a famine throughout the land. And with the famine that's taken place, God then leads him out on the other side of the Jordan River, where he is ministered to directly by God's hand. He is fed uh, by a raven. And so there's a bird that brings him, Scripture says, uh, meat and bread every day. And he is given water from the brook. And so God leads him out because there's a famine in the land, but that famine also affects uh, where he is living. It's not that he gets to proclaim this and then not have to deal with any of the consequences. And so uh, Elijah finds himself in a place where God has to literally bring him his food and his beverage for the day. Following that then, the, the brook dries up, but God leads him again to a widow at Zarephath. And the widow who's there, with, it's just her and her son. She has a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. And Elijah says, if you'll just trust God in this, why don't you bake a cake of bread for me and a cake of bread for the two of you and see if God doesn't supply what we need. And it says, they never ran out of flour and oil. There's a miracle that takes place there as the widow's son becomes ill and dies and, and Elijah goes and there's this weird story where he kind of stretches out over the boy and, and in new life, you know, kind of breathes back into, into him. And then from there, you know, it's after all this that God says, now I want you to go back and speak to Ahab. We don't know how long, you know, the drought has been, but it's time. I want you to go back and speak to to Ahab. And so it sets up this scene then that on Mount Carmel, you have this, you know, confrontation taking place. And there must be enough of a distance because we know that Ahab would like nothing more than to get his hands on Elijah and to kill him. And so there must be a little bit of a distance, you know, between the two. And over here, you have Elijah and maybe just a couple of his assistants, two or three guys who are with him. Over here, you have Ahab and you have all the prophets of Baal. And so what Elijah says is, gather up all the other religious leaders, all the other you know, leaders inside of, of the gods that you all have been worshiping, gather them and bring them together. We're going to have you know, kind of a little match here between whose God is greater. And so there are 450 prophets of Baal, there are 450 prophets of Asherah, and they gather all on Mount Carmel. Now somehow there either has to be messengers or people watching. There's word of this that gets out to all the people in terms of what takes place. And what Elijah says is, we're going to see whose God can send down fire. And so you guys go ahead and go first, prepare the bull, prepare the wood, prepare the, the, you know, the, the altar there. Call down and see if your gods, because there's multiple of them, you have a lot of different opportunities here, multiple choice, any of your gods can bring down fire. And they do what they have to do, and they're doing their dances and their chants, and nothing happens. And I don't know, there's part of me that loves this verse, and part of me thinks it's not very Christian-like, but 
Elijah begins to taunt them. And he says, maybe you're God, you know, maybe you need to shout louder. Maybe you should do something a little bit differently. Maybe you're doing it wrong. One even phrase seems to suggest, Elisha says, maybe your God is in the bathroom and is currently indisposed and can't come help you. But there's nothing that takes place. Well, then it's Elijah's turn, or actually it's Yahweh's turn. And the name for Elijah is the Lord is God. It's a mixture of the two Hebrew words, Elohim for God and Yahweh for Lord. The Lord is God is his name. And when it's Elijah's turn, he says, let me show you what the true God can do. And he instructs his attendants who are with him to fill up uh, four bowls, four large bowls with water, and to dump it on the wood and the bowl that's been, you know, cut open there as the sacrifice. Go and do it two more times. And so there are 12 big bowls of water dumped on this sacrifice. So much so that it's drenched and it runs down through and the trench that's around also fills up with water. And Elijah calls out to God and fire comes down and it consumes the whole thing that's there, even to the point that the water evaporates. And it says then that the people knew that the Lord was God. Almost in their shouting, they're shouting, the Lord is God. I wonder if it almost sounds like they're shouting Elijah, Elijah, but it's the meaning of his name. And it says the people at that point recognize who God is. Ahab, even at this point, recognizes who God is. Now, the 850 prophets that are there, there's a different outcome for them as far as, you know, their life terminates on that day. And that's one of the places reading the Old Testament, it gets a little bloody and gruesome for us to think about. But you would think this would be the crowning moment for Elijah. He's heard from God. God called him. God provided for him in terms of sending a bird to bring him rolls and to bring him hamburgers every day. God fed him literally through a widow who didn't have much, but yet what she had never ran dry. God led him back and he you know, faces off against the king and 850 other religious leaders. Fire comes down. This should be the high point of Elijah's life and ministry. And so let's read what comes next. In 1 Kings chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message, messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. 24 hours, you're dead. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom, broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. This is not the section of scripture that I would expect to come after what just took place on Mount Carmel. This should be the high point. After all, how many times have you said, if I could just hear from God, if I could just see the hand of God, if I could just know that I know, then I would be able to trust him more in the difficult times. And so Elijah has already stood up against the king of Israel, and now he cower, cowers underneath the words of the queen of Israel. He's already stood up against 850 prophets, and now the words of one woman send, send him running to the wilderness. 
He's already experienced the miraculous power and presence of God, and yet he feels deserted and alone. And his prayer is not, God, will you take care of Jezebel for me? His prayer is not, you know, God, will you give me another mountaintop experience? His prayer is not one of vindication. It's, Lord, will you just take me home because I'm done? Is it because of exhaustion? You know, he's given everything he could possibly give, and now there's nothing left. And Vince Lombardi said that fatigue makes cowards of us all. And maybe there's just nothing left in in the tank. And there's a reason that people who write about willpower says that it's almost like a tank full that you get at the beginning of the day. And that's why we make better decisions and better choices morally at the beginning of the day than at the end of the day, because sometimes there's just not a whole lot of juice left in the tank. And maybe he's exhausted. Maybe he's overwhelmed, you know, by everything that's taken place. He thought he already did the hard part, and now it would be easy, and to face another challenge, he's just overwhelmed. Some have suggested maybe Elijah feels like a failure, because even though we read it as this grand thing has taken place, he thought maybe if he did it the right way, then Ahab would have become, you know, a a follower of God, and Jezebel would have become a follower of God, and, and everything would have gone back to the way that it was supposed to be, and because it didn't, maybe it means he messed up. Or maybe he's just lonely because he's been standing for God on his own for such a long period of time that there's no support, and he just feels exhausted and lonely and cut off. Do you know also, I wonder if there's a little bit of shame and humiliation that comes when you stand in the presence of a holy God, you think, almost like Isaiah, woe is me. Because in the power and presence of the Almighty, who am I? But whatever it is, Elijah goes and he finds himself under the broom bush and and God ministers to to him there with a couple of good nights sleep and another meal that an angel prepares for him there by the fire. But it's interesting that it doesn't end there because after that kind of initial replenishment that takes place, he continues to walk and he continues to walk towards the mountain of God, uh, Mount Horeb. And that's where I want to read just a few more verses for you. There, this is on Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. He went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they were trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand in the presence, or stand in the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, He pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, the same question as before, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so inside of this moment, Elijah goes from the broom bush to the cave. And it's interesting that as as God meets him there, his question is not, what are you doing there, but what are you doing here? 
And so wherever you go, the psalmist says that there's not a place that you can go to get away from the presence of the Lord. God is with Elijah in the cave. Even at his lowest point, at his most bewildered point, most confused, most exhausted, God is with him inside of that moment. And he says, here's how I want you to know that I'm with you. Walk outside. And if you can imagine a cave on the side of a mountain, the last thing that you want to hear is a violent wind that is so fierce that the rocks begin to tear apart. When you are standing on rocks and just outside of a cave of rocks and things begin to crumble, that is usually not a good sign for you. The only thing worse than a violent wind is an earthquake that also, again, would leave you wondering, what is my future in the midst of all this taking place around me? And then a fire. And so in these mighty acts, you know, that happened, it says that the Lord was not in those things, but then came a gentle, quiet whisper. A gentle breeze that hushes through in the midst of the silence. It wasn't in the loud and the the phenomenal that Elijah experienced the presence of God. It was in the still, small voice of a gentle whisper when he's in the cave or just outside of the cave. God reminds us that we never go from his presence, but maybe it comes in ways that we least expect. You see, I think sometimes we often look for God inside of the monumental experience, the mountaintop experiences, the big, high, holy moments, but he wants to meet us oftentimes most in the mundane. Why? Because if our faith were just resting upon the monumental events inside of life, Is your faith faith, or is it just, I saw God, I saw God, I saw God, and it's all these high, holy moments. But just like with the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and the disciples, he says it's time for us to go back down. And so I hope that we have a faith that isn't just dependent on the next conference, or the next retreat, or the next big moment, or the next time where you're going to get an unexpected check in the mail that's going to cover the difference of what you need, but that even inside of the mundane the daily devotions, the times in the car, the times at night where maybe in the midst of tears you pour out your heart before God that you begin to sense his presence just as powerfully, if not more powerfully, inside of those moments as in the mountaintop experiences. And so he reminds Elijah of his presence, and then he says, I want you to go back. And when you go back, here's what's going to happen. Here's two guys that I want you to anoint as king over different regions. There's this guy, Elisha, and that's where we get to the other Elijah sound of name. Elisha is going to take over for you and be the next prophet inside of Israel. You are not alone. You are not the last. You are not the only. But I'm going to raise up leaders and prophets after you. And oh, by the way, Elijah, when you go back, I also want to introduce you to 7,000 other people who also did not bow down to the Baals and to the Asherah poles. You are not alone. And so the presence of God sends him, sends him back into the mission of God. His placement hasn't necessarily changed, but his time with God has altered how he has seen his situation. Instead of hopeless and alone, now it's something that he could go back for and to know that God is going to use him in the midst of where he has been placed. Sometimes we think we're all alone. When I was a high school student uh, who came to Christ as a sophomore, I I thought I was the only Christian inside of my high school. 
because I looked around at my church and I looked around at Delanco Camp and there were no other Woodstown High School Christian students that I knew, so I assumed they didn't exist. Do you know it was after I went back to Sharptown in 2002 and began to meet some people? And they said that they had graduated from Woodstown in 93 or 95 or maybe in my year, 94. And they were in a relationship with Jesus during that time and I never knew it. Because I thought the goal for me was just to survive because I was just alone and all I had to do was just get through these tough high school years and then it would get better. And there was an army of people around that if I just opened my eyes and looked up, I would have seen. It's not easy, but when we begin to wrestle through this kind of relationship with God and how we wish things could be and wish things should be or where they ought or, or where we think you know, God is moving us and we compare it to the place where we are, I think there's three things that, again, are, are fairly obvious, but I think this story points out that we need to always be sure to keep in mind. And these, again, are P words, but it's the presence of God, it's the people of God, and it's our prayers unto God. And so the presence of God, again, it comes oftentimes in the mundane, not in the monumental. The people of God, if we just look up and see the people that God has uh, placed us around, you know, that God has surrounded us with a cloud of witnesses, with a group of people to support us, that oftentimes we don't realize they're there until we need them, until we reach out. But I think God also wants to alter even how we pray. Now let me just say, you are invited to pray and to be honest before God. If you're feeling it, he knows it, you might as well articulate it. So I think when I talk about God altering our prayers, it's not that we need to clean up our language or pray things in a particular order or a cadence or somehow convince God to do something, but that God begins to shift even our focus of how we pray. Because so often our prayers are informed by our placement. And so we tend to, to pray mostly for ourselves and the people closest to us. We tend to pray for things that are kind of temporary relief to minor or moderate issues. Now, listen again, you be honest before God. If, there, if I stub my toe and it hurts and I'm laying in bed at 2 in the morning, it is okay to pray for your toe. But if the only thing that I ever pray for inside of my communication with God is my toe and my happiness and my bank account and to protect my kids who, who are out driving in a car right now to get home safely, if those are the only things we pray about, then we are allowing our placement to dictate our prayers instead of, maybe not even the other way around, but instead of a relationship between the two that God gives us a perspective that we belong to him and his presence is active inside of our lives. And that shapes our circumstances, but also our circumstances don't have to dictate our faith before him. So maybe this is trying to be a little bit too cute with this, but, you know, when you're up here and you, you're doing this, um, well, I'm going to say it anyway, and you have to listen to me for the next couple of minutes. But here, here's what I would just say. And you could argue with me on the frequency of this, but I would say seek the presence of God daily inside of your life. Build time and space weekly for the people of God inside of your life. And evaluate monthly your prayers to God. Now here's why I say that. I think daily in the mundane we need to meet God and we need his presence. The reason I say weekly is because there are days that you know you are just jammed full with what's going on and there's not space. But I would say in the course of a seven-day period, there needs to be time and space inside of your life to both encourage and receive encouragement from others. 
to be in fellowship, to have rich conversation. And you know that when that time stretches out and you go weeks without that, it begins to affect how you see the world and how you see God. It affects both your placement and your prayers. And so there is something to knowing that we are not alone and you need people and you have people. And let me just say this, maybe this sounds cliche, preachery too, but if you don't have people or feel like you don't have people, come see me and we'll help get you some people. Because we have some other people who need people. And I know you just can't instantly just sign up on a church bulletin and say, I want friends, and we're like, here you go. But like, the reality is like, we need people, and most of us, if we just open our eyes and look up, realize that we have people, we just haven't made them and relationships a priority inside of our lives. So I think daily, I think weekly, and, and maybe because today is communion, I, I think a good time frame is you know, every so often, maybe every month to say, what is it that's dominating my prayer focus? Maybe I've not really been praying. Maybe I've been praying mostly just for the things that are going on right inside of my life, and I need to pick my eyes up to the larger focus. That God would begin to even shift how we pray and what we pray for. A few years ago, I came across something that Luis Palau, who I learned after first service, passed away in March. But Luis Palau, if you ever listen to Caleb, he's the guy with the cool accent that kind of gives those like little moments once in a while. And he talked about that God always answers prayer. And so sometimes we talk about unanswered prayer, but he said God always answers prayer because if that's that communication, there is an answer, but it may not be the answer that you thought. And so Luis Palau, and I thought this was brilliant when I, when I first heard it, said there's five answers to, you know, our prayers before God. And, and the first is, no, I love you too much. And so you can look back over your shoulder and be extremely thankful for the prayers that God said no to. The things that you thought you really wanted that did not happen, and later you were like, I'm so glad he did not want to go out on a second date with me. I am so glad that they turned me down for that job. I'm so glad that this didn't work out because now I see what I did not see then. No, I love you too much. Yes, I thought you'd never ask that God, you know, sometimes we think we have to convince God to answer our prayers and sometimes he's just waiting for us to ask those things that he's already laid on our heart. The third is a big one. It's the timing question. Yes, but not yet. And that God's going to answer it in his time. The fourth goes along with it. You know, yes, and here's more. You know, I thought you'd never ask and, you know, here's what I want to do, and then maybe oftentimes, you know, the fifth is the one we struggle with. Yes, but I'm going to answer your prayer differently than what you and how you thought I should answer your prayer. So I think we pray with honesty, but I think we also ask at the same time that God would begin to reshape how we pray. So this morning's communion, and you don't have to be a member of St. John's to receive communion. Uh, communion is an opportunity, uh, but it's not just an individual opportunity. It's an opportunity for us together as the people of God to seek his presence and to ask that God would continue to grow our faith to remake, to renew the patterns inside of our lives. So here's what I'm going to ask. that uh, The band's going to come back and they're going to sing a couple of verses of a song and then I'll come back up and at that, that time we'll receive the elements together. But in the midst of that, maybe as we're singing or maybe during the communion time, I want to invite you possibly to, to come forward here to the front. Uh, there is nothing special about an altar except that it is 
stepping out from where I am to place yourself inside the presence of God. And ask that God, you know, may this even be a reminder that I need your presence inside of my life. I need your reshaping and remaking even of the patterns within me. And so this morning, if you want to receive receive communion at the altar, I want to invite you to do that, uh, or even just to prepare your hearts uh, as we begin, uh, you know, this final song uh, to conclude our time together. Let's pray. Uh, God, I pray now that you would come, that even as we conclude this service, Lord, that you uh, would speak deeply, that you would draw us close to yourself, that we would not miss your presence, that we would not neglect the people that you've placed, placed inside of our lives. Lord God, also that, Lord, our prayers would grow to be more than just what's taking place immediately around me. And so, God, in whatever of those areas or however you want to move this morning, we invite you to do so, uh, to meet us inside of our closing moments here. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.